The 2003 crash of the space shuttle Columbia sparked big changes at NASA. That's when its engineering and safety center got established to provide safety oversight and a culture more attuned to safety. My next guest was the lead guy for the engineering and safety center, and now he's a finalist in this year's Service to America medals program. NASA's former chief engineer, Ralph Rowe Jr., joins me now. Mr. Rowe, good to have you with us. Uh, Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. And congratulations on your recent retirement after a long career, mostly with NASA, right? Or all with NASA? All with NASA, yes. Thank you. All right. So tell us what happened in terms of the agency's reaction to Columbia, because this was just, you know, a shocking and and heartrending worldwide news event. Admiral Gaiman was the chairman of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. And before the investigation was complete, Admiral Gaiman Uh, made a statement in the press about the Space Shuttle Program Safety and Mission Assurance Organization. He said, there's no there there. And what he was referring to, he felt like that organization didn't have the resources, skills, expertise to provide the shuttle program with a second perspective on problem as challenging as foam loss off the external tank, which caused the accident. And so I, I was given the action by the administrator, Sean O'Keefe at the time, to address this issue. And so the concept we came up with was to have an organiz- an independent organization with experts from across the country that could come in at any time and help a program with its most difficult problems. So That's what we set out to do when we established the NASA Engineering and Safety Center following uh, the Columbia accident. And these pieces of tile fell off on the ascent. And in some ways, the voyage was doomed even as it proceeded to go into orbit and do its thing, but it was not going to make it through. And there were probably people that knew that throughout the entire length of the mission, That itself is an unimaginable thing to carry. But what should the agency have done differently before the tiles fell off, I guess, is really the question, one of the questions you had to answer. It was uh, foam that came off the external Foam, right, yeah. And hit the space shuttle orbiter left-hand wing, which uh, the leading edge of that wing is reinforced carbon-carbon, but it's fairly thin, and it cracked one of those reinforced carbon-carbon panels. And everyone knew at the time that it, this foam came off. We film Ascent, and we have a team that looks at all those films and alerted everybody that that happened. I think the thing that, in hindsight, going back, what should have been done is to get a, some type of photograph as- assessment of that wing uh, before the Columbia reentered. Could that or, have prevented what happened from happening? It couldn't have prevented it from happening, but it could have had us attempt some kind of repair, rescue, anything that we could have done at the time if we'd known how severe the damage was. Sure. And in the larger picture, then, this engineering and safety group that you established, what did it do differently in the large sense than was being done at NASA at that time? So I think what the NASA Engineering and Safety Center provides is a group of experts that can come in and look at a problem like that and say, hey, no, you need to do this or that differently and just provide the leaders a different perspective on a problem in order to make a better decision. 
going forward. And that's really the key to that organization. It sounds like your challenge was not so much engineering, but human relations and getting people to accept a new approach. Oh, absolutely. I, I, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board thought at the time the shuttle program was too insular and tried to solve its problems with the resources it had at hand rather than bringing in folks from the outside to take a look at what they're doing. And so what I'm proud to say is after nearly 20 years, the NASA Engineering and Safety Center has really become ingrained in the NASA safety culture, and all the programs utilize these experts to look at their most challenging problems. So that's really rewarding after 20 years. So the idea then, the basic idea is there is third party or objective assessment of everything going on and people learn to accept that judgment and say, yeah, you know, you're right and we should do this differently and that'll increase safety. That's exactly it. And uh, they've done over 1,000 assessments now over 20 years and had a tremendous impact on all of NASA's missions. We're speaking with Ralph Rowe, Jr. He recently retired as NASA's chief engineer, and he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And I can't help but asking, how do you think things might have been different in the way the whole Columbia program went had your organization been in place prior to it? Great question, Tom. The the real opportunity to break the chain of events that led to Columbia was really a couple of flights earlier. We had a very similar foam loss from the external tank that hit the left-hand solid rocket booster instead of hitting the orbiter and put a four-inch ding in this thick metallic ring. That should have been the perfect close call for the folks in the program, myself included, to say, hey, we need to investigate this further. Unfortunately, though, at the next flight readiness review where we reviewed this problem, we decided it wasn't a safety of flight concern and we could continue to fly. But if there had been an independent organization like the NASA Engineering and Safety Center that we could have brought in and looked at this problem with a fresh set of eyes and the right technical expertise, I think, uh, given how this model has worked since then, that they could have convinced us with data that, hey, we need to investigate this further. And that was really the opportunity, I think, to stop what happened in Columbia. And bringing in an organization with a fresh set of eyes to look at your problem is uh, not unique to the aerospace industry and I think can benefit everybody if you just take the time. When you have a tough technical problem, bring folks in to look at it and give you a different perspective. Someone else might have said, well, yes, that piece didn't penetrate over there, but if that piece was 10% bigger, which it could be, then, then you'd have a hole all the way to the skin and then the game's up. That kind of thing is what someone might have said. Exactly right. You know, a few seconds later, a few seconds earlier, the release of that foam and it hits in a different location and has a different impact. So absolutely right. And you sound like a soft-spoken gentleman, maybe with some Southern roots there I'm detecting through your speech. Did you ever, you know, early on have to yell and scream and holler and stamp your feet at people? Or, I mean, how did you, you don't sound like a guy that goes around with a baseball bat. Actually, it was very difficult to get programs to utilize this organization at the beginning. In fact, the very first assessments we did, the administrator had to tell the programs that we were going to utilize this organization. So they were directed to utilize us. What's changed over 20 years is now program managers you know, look for us to come help 
And that's really a, a huge achievement in, in seeing that the evidence that the culture actually changed. Any examples that you recall in your mind of a specific type of engineering challenge where people came to agreement, yeah, we need to do this differently or do this this way instead of that way? One of the first ones that I remember, again, with the space shuttle program, which was our focus, obviously, right after the accident, we had the foam loss off the external tank was the original cause for the Columbia accident, but there were more areas of foam and ice on the tank that could do the exact same thing. And so some of those areas needed to be repaired and design changed in order to eliminate that risk. And so the ice frost ramps on the external tank often would liberate ice, which would impact the space shuttle orbiter also. So the NASA Engineering and Safety Center helped work on a redesign of that area. So we also changed the design of the ice frost ramps, which was very good too. Which points up two kinds of engineering approaches to a problem. One is to sort of patch it to get through the next time around. The other is to design it out in the first place. Right. You you really want to do everything you can to design those kind of risks out and not have to operationally control risks. So if you can... Obviously, the best thing to do is design out a risk. And so now that you've retired, you've left NASA. I see lots of trophies and plaques and citations in the background here. We're on a Zoom call, which listeners won't be able to see, unfortunately. What are you doing? And you're still in touch. I'm still in touch with everybody. It's only been, uh, you know, six months or so. So I talk to the folks quite often. But uh, actually, really, my wife and I both just retired. And so we're doing some traveling that we haven't done in a long time. Yeah, so you're thinking about the aircraft you're on and the design and the safety culture of the airline and so forth. Are you one of those kind of flyers that thinks about all that, or you pretty much enjoy the flight? No, I enjoy the flight. I enjoy flying anytime I get an opportunity. Ralph Rowe Jr. retired as NASA's chief engineer recently, and he's now a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about Ralph at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president 
I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones 
that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, 
right? As I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.